Tim, I thought we tried something different today, and you just played a whole service. So if, if your wife doesn't mind, you just <laughs> keep it going. It's just a few of us in here. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, morning, morning. We are back like we never left. Right back where we were as soon as this thing hit. From March 29th, we are complying. There are nine people in the room and it is weird, once again. But in the midst of all of that, God's grace still provides for us and we're still able to, to do church. And so here we are, here we are. It's not ideal. It's more surreal, but real is still in the word surreal. So we find ourselves continuing to do church in somewhat of a digital way. And we'll try to continue with that today. We are winding down in this series on love. Uh, this is wrapping up this week and next week. We'll conclude this series. My last two messages were basically trying to distinguish and separate sin and temptation. Because these things can happen sometimes so fast and in tandem, it doesn't always seem like, it seems like we just did it and didn't even give any real calls, real thought to it, but we saw sort of a biblical paradigm that shows that there is a process that we all go through that the Bible lays out for when temptation becomes actual sin. And so that was, we consider. Consider is just the thought, the whatever that is. And we can't do anything about that. Temptation, while in this life, is going to happen. The, me and Mike, our heart was to make sure that people in our church, you all, all of us, including ourselves, are not deceived by the thought the temptation, and especially if it's something you've done before, even if it was something you gave into yesterday, that the temptation to do it again is somehow the same thing as doing it again. It's not. And it's important that we understand that distinction so that we're not discouraged by our own sinfulness. Some of us, I've done this before, plenty, plenty, where you, <clears throat> you give up because you think you've already gave in. And the reality is, no, Jesus was tempted to consider. Eve was tempted to consider. Everyone is tempted to consider. But then there's justified where you start making excuses for why you should do it. So maybe it's, you know, God wants you to really love someone, but they're, they're very difficult because of they've hurt you. They've said things. So you start thinking, well, this person said this and they didn't ask for forgiveness. And so I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not going to be a doormat. You know, whatever it is, you think that, maybe it's that. It's, you know, you start to make excuses for why you should do it, but you still haven't done it yet. But you're, you're like Eve, you know, we're, we're, we all do this, where it's like, well, the, 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 the fruit does look pleasing to the eye. You know, you start to make excuses for why you should do it. And then you agree, like Eve, she agreed with the serpent that it would be wise. It makes one wise. We start to agree that this is what we're going to do. This person, I'm not going to let this person walk all over me, and so I'm going to 
do this. I'm going to be cruel. I'm going to be cold. I'm going to pick a fight. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is. Or maybe it's fear of man. You know, you don't, you want this person's attention. And so you're going to do this to get their attention. You may flatter them and say something to them that you don't even think or try to impress them. And that's not even who you are, but you want, you know, fill in the blank. But there's this sense where we, we consider, we, we agree, we justify it, make excuses. We agree that it's good to do, and then we act. Those messages were meant to encourage us that there are times that we may have think we failed and we haven't. So it was to help us distinguish between, oh, we haven't given in yet. Just because I had this crazy thought doesn't mean that I've done it. But what about when we do fail? What about when we do give in? What about when we're not loving, when we're not kind, when we are not patient? What about when we go through the process, we don't fight as well as we think, or we just don't even really fight. We just, we get considered and then we start to justify, we agree, and then we just act. What do we do then? What happens when we insist on our own way? What happens when we don't do it? What does it, what does it look like then? What do we do? Last week, Mike alluded to some things in his, in his great message that I want to double down on in terms of making a plan. He said some, really, some good things about what he does practically daily. I want, to, I want to double down on that today. So I'm going to remix a sermon that I did three years ago out of 2 Corinthians 7, two primary verses, verses 10 and 11. Now, this message today is actually the prequel to Mike's message last week. So I was preaching at a different church last week, but I would have taught this last week and Mike would have taught what he taught last week, this week. So this is sort of the prequel. All of you who watch movies have seen movies and then watch the prequel after it. So you get it. You understand that sometimes you watch the movie and then you go back and see that movie before the movie. Well, this kind of functions like that in a sense. But the goal is to talk about what do we do when we do fail? What happens when we're not loving? Because a hindrance to love, and Mike alluded to this, it's about planning. You've heard the phrase, fail to plan, plan to fail. That's a wonderful, it's not a biblical proverb, but, the, but it's taken from biblical wisdom. It's taken from biblical wisdom. You fail to plan, you plan to fail. And so we're going to look at these two verses again today. I'm going to remix this sermon from three years ago. There are some of you that weren't here, so this won't even be a remix. This will be the first, this will be the first one you've heard. Uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. And I quote, reading from the CSB translation. And if you're at home, it should be on your screen. So you're reading from the CSB translation too. It says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice in every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Now, quickly, let me explain what's happening really quickly. This, these two verses are Paul describing the response of the Corinthians to his third letter. All right, Paul wrote four letters to Corinth. We have two of those. We have his second and fourth letter, 
We don't know what his first letter said, but we do know his third letter was scathing. We know that it was a letter that was super corrective, so much so that, it, that Paul was unable to do ministry because he was worried about how the church was going to respond to that letter. The church that he discipled, he planted this church and was there for 18 months, and this church was going away from its foundation. People were walking away from the faith, and they were listening to people, other apostles, who were questioning Paul's legitimate apostleship. And so he was, he was upset. He was a pastor. He loved these people, but he needed to correct them, but he was concerned that his letter would, would actually do the opposite until Titus comes back, and you can see some of this in other parts of chapter 7. Titus comes back with good news and says, hey, the church received me well, and they are responding. They're responding. So in context, Paul is describing what he has heard of their actions. And he's giving his own perspective on what their actions look like. But in doing this, he gives us some very important distinctions between what we call conviction and what we call condemnation. And he also shows us a a bit of a plan, a structure of a plan, a practical plan that we can have to go after the things that we want to do to glorify God. But in order to do that, we have to understand the distinction between conviction and condemnation because all sorrow, all sadness isn't good sorrow and good sadness. It's not, doesn't necessarily mean that a person is, is sad for the right reasons. So let's, let's, let's dive into this and, and see what he's saying. Beginning in verse 10, he says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So what we would call conviction is essentially what he's calling godly grief. And that's the first characteristic of conviction. It's godly grief. It's a godly grief. That's the first characteristic. And basically what that means is it's godly grief is aware of its sin against God. When you have godly grief, you understand that your actions, your attitudes, some of your thoughts, those things are against the Lord. It's, it's, it's vertical first. Godly grief is vertical first. You know, in Psalm 51.4, David, David lays this out pretty clearly in his, his psalm of repentance to the Lord. He sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then wanting to get her, having her husband killed and trying to hide it and a, and a bunch of things. I mean, he sinned against the whole lot, the whole nation of Israel because he was their king. He sinned against Bathsheba, definitely. He sinned against her husband sinned against his general by asking him to put him in the front lines so that he would be killed. But in Psalm 51.4, here's what he says in his psalm. He says this to the Lord. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Now, David clearly knows he wasn't, wasn't just against the Lord. But he understands that morality and the standard of morality does not come from us. It doesn't come from humanity. The morality that you and I are trying to emulate and trying to do comes from God. 
It doesn't come from us. Like what we're trying to obey is not that we didn't write the Bible. This is the word of God inspired. God used human beings to write it, but it's inspired. So the standard of morality does not come from us. It comes from him. And so David understands that even though I did this horizontally, ultimately, because you, God, you are the one that defined good and evil. I've sinned against you. It may have affected this here horizontally, as all sin typically does, but ultimately it's sin against him. And so this godly grief recognizes that our sin is against God. It doesn't act like it's only against God, but it understands that that's ultimately who we sin against is God. Other people may experience that horizontally, but vertically it's different. This godly grief is a sadness. It's a sadness because we let God down. We let God down. This is what David's realizing. Man, I let you down. I'm not even worthy of you. When when Peter, when Peter said to the Lord, all the Lord did was let him bring some fish in. And Peter was just so aware of his sinfulness and his doubting God that he said, please, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. He, under, he wasn't worried about what the other fishermen thought. He wasn't even worried about whether he let them down or not. He, he, was, he was concerned with the fact that he sinned again. He said, Lord, please, I'm a sinful man. Please be away from me. Like, I'm, I don't even deserve to be around you. I doubted you for something as simple as throw some fish in there. Remember, Peter was like, I mean, we've been doing that all night. But all right, Lord, since you said it, you know, and they can't even bring the fish in. And when he gets there, he's like, man, go away from me, Lord. Godly grief recognizes that reality. It's a sadness that, that we let God down. Now, here's why this is important. And let me say this before I say that. A lot of Christians don't always have godly grief. We may need to train ourselves, which we'll talk about, how to have godly grief. And this is why this is important, because our sin is mostly horizontal. The way it plays out, we break his law, but the way it plays out, it may be sinning against other people. But those people also sin against us. Often, especially, you know, families, siblings, co-workers, you know, people, you know, people, we just wherever people are, sin is. And so people sin against us, just like we sin against them. If our grief is mainly because we've sinned against other people, and that's the primary sorrow that we feel, then we are setting ourselves up to not grieve over our sin because they also sin against us. We're setting ourselves up to minimize our sinfulness because, well, shoot, they sin against me. I'm not asking for forgiveness because they started the fight. They've been bitter at me all week, or they've been judging me all week, or they've been talking behind my back, or... They've been complaining about me. I'm not apologizing for nothing. They needed that rebuke or whatever it is, right? We'll find ways to, if my, if my primary concern is horizontal and these people sin against me, I'm setting myself up to not take my sin seriously because they sin against me too. You ever, sinned against, you ever got in an argument and then you felt convicted like, man, I need to go ask for forgiveness? 
and then you did, and then they didn't, and you got offended. Man, I used to do that. I used to do that. People would ask for forgiveness, and I'd be like, man, I forgive you. As if, like, I ain't say nothing too. You know, I used to do stuff like that. And you get, or I've had it done to me, and you get offended. You get offended. It's because I'm, I'm primarily concerned with the horizontal. And so if you sin against me enough that I'm not even asking you for forgiveness because I'm justifying my sin towards you because my primary concern is horizontal. If our grief is mainly against people, we set ourselves up to no longer think our sin against people needs to be repented of. And so we can just say stuff. But when we keep our minds on that our sin is against God, first and foremost, and this God mercifully forgives us, it changes things. And this is what I said, believers don't always, don't always get this. I think we have to train ourselves in this more than we give it credit for. And what I mean by training my, ourselves is this. We need to compare ourselves to God and to Scripture. Because when I compare my actions to the scripture, I'm always in the wrong. Whenever there's sin, at least. I'm in the wrong. Whenever I compare myself to the scripture, I compare myself to Jesus. I compare myself to what Jesus is asking of me. Listen, most of the things that Jesus asks us for are not in contingency with people treating us a certain way. He doesn't say when people love you, love them back. He says the opposite. He doesn't say, he says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. He doesn't say, hey, if people treat you right, treat them right. He doesn't say that. He does the opposite. He doesn't care if people treat us. When I say that, I don't mean he doesn't care. What I mean is his standard for our obedience is not how they treat us. It's how he treated us. So if we compare ourselves to God and what the scripture says, we will always find where we need to grow. But if I compare myself to you, oh, I'm always in the right. Or I can find a lot of reasons why my actions are justified or they're not that sinful. My tone wasn't that bad because you said and did this. You had a tone. You know, my... Complaining isn't that big of a deal because, you know, it's that. I know for me personally, one of the things I hate the most is when people correct me for things that they do. And I'll get offended like, why are you correcting me? You do it. But I cannot find one scripture that says that's the right approach. There's no fruit of the spirit in that. But I sin like that a lot. I get offended. My wife brings something up, and I'm like, you do it too, as if that dismisses what she's bringing up. There's no verse that says that. How many times have you told your kids to stop whining in a whiny voice? Knock it off. The very thing you told them to do, you just did in front of them. So you basically said, do as I say, not as I do, and you expect them to obey. You ever tell your kids, hey, stop fighting. 
Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, this is, I've done it. Oh, I just do the, hey, knock it off. I give them the dads on, they, all right, Poppy says something, let's relax for a minute. Wait 30 seconds and then we back at it. If I compare myself to God, then the things that are told to me are make sense or my sins are obvious. When I compare myself to you, to my children, to my wife, to someone else, someone on social media who comes at me a certain way, then I respond back with vitriol, with anger, with self-righteousness, with judgment, with mockery. It makes sense to me. You said something to me. But when I compare myself to the scriptures, it's like, ah, okay. What fruit of the spirit was that? We have to train ourselves to, to have godly grief. Believer, don't assume. And we all have it. Don't get me wrong. The spirit's in us, right? So we have it, but it's like a muscle. We have to exercise it because it's not like as strong as it needs to be. And you don't just excel at it, right? Just because you, the spirit is in us. Like we have to exercise the muscle. We need to train our minds to remember godly grief, that it's vertical, and that we, when we sin, we compare it to the fruit of the spirit that God says we should have, not the actions of the person that we may have sinned against. Because I will always find a reason why my actions were not as sinful as they are because of what you did or said to me. Second thing that conviction has in here is it produces a repentance. This is still 2 Corinthians 7, verse, verse 10. Produces a repentance. Repentance really is kind of threefold. It's always a change. It's a change of mind. A change of mind. It's I agree with who God is. I agree with what God did. And I agree with how he says live. That's the change first. I agree with who God is. Jesus is Lord. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. I agree with what he did. He came to earth, lived perfectly, died on the cross, receiving the punishment instead of me, and then rose from the dead, showing that his actual life was accepted. His sacrifice was accepted by God because everyone that rose from the dead in the Bible rose by some other human being. Jesus rose on his own. Jesus rose on his own. So that's showing that his rising from the dead was proof that God accepted his sacrifice for my sins. I agree with what he did. And I agree with how he says live. So now I want to walk in a manner worthy. I want to put to death that which is earthly in me. I want to make every effort. I want to do, you know, fill in the blank, whatever scriptures that you can attach to. It's a change of mind. It's also a change of perception. Godly grief is a change of perception. It produces a repentance, and it says, I see things differently. I just see stuff that used to not bother me or things that I used to laugh at are now sinful to me. Jokes that I would tell or say stuff, now I'm just like, ah, I ain't gonna laugh at that. I ain't gonna watch that show. Ah, now, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. We're not talking about I do this perfectly or you do it perfectly. But what I'm saying is there's a sense where, you know, I see things differently. There's also a perception I care about things differently. 
You know, I, I think there was a time, I mean, I've always cared about, like, I've always loved children and stuff like that. Even before I was a dad, I used to love children. When I was in high school, my junior and senior year, I took uh, child development. And Miss Riggleman was my teacher. And she was like, oh, you're my favorite student because I was just crazy. And the kids were four years old. And I used to just love playing with them and having fun. And I'd dress up in these costumes and just be wild. The stuff that you would expect to some degree from me now, like it was just fun. I've always loved kids. I've always cared about children. And, and I remember like relatives being pregnant and be like, wow, there's a baby. And I've always cared about that. But I didn't really think about abortion, stuff like that any old kind of way until I became a believer. And then I saw things differently. I just had a different perception of some of these things. They're, they're just things that I saw differently. When I, was, when I was in the streets, I used to watch guys be angry towards their kids because they got a woman pregnant that they ain't really like, and now they got this responsibility. And I remember thinking, like, man, this dude's going to grow up and, and, and remember this, bro. I remember, but I just didn't see it the same until I became a believer, and I realized the father, the father, and the importance of the role of a dad, an earthly dad, a father, a dad. I, it, it just changed my perception. Repentance changes how I see things. I care about things differently. And the last way for repentance, it, it's a change in direction. It's, it's, it's I want to be different. It's not a New Year's resolution different. It's I want to be different because of the Lord. It's a change in perception. I want to be different. It's a change in direction. It's just, I will fight to be different. I'm going to resist temptation. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to just give in to sin and be comfortable with it. I'm not. I'm going to, I will fight to be different. And it's also, I will fight differently. This salvation without regret and this repentance, it's a change of mind. It's a change of perception and a change in direction. I will fight to be different and I will fight differently. What's interesting about Jesus, about this fight differently, right, is most people thought that the Messiah was going to come and be a militaristic king like David was. He would fight with basically Rome was the world power to them at that time. He'd fight against Rome, expel all the Gentiles and establish the kingdom of God forever. This is why Jesus often described himself as the son of man, because he understood that the what people were expecting if you just said he was the Messiah, son of man was like a common phraseology, even though it had theological underpinnings from Daniel. He only used it one time when he stood towards the end when he was about to be crucified. And he he used the Daniel reference about the son of man, Daniel's vision. And that's how they knew this dude is claiming to be the son of God. But he called himself the son of man because that didn't have any real it wasn't uh, it, it had no real expectations. It was just like saying, I'm just another dude. I'm another, I'm another guy. I'm just a son of man. He didn't want that because he knew that what came with that were these explosive ideas about what the Messiah would be. But he came to fight differently. No one wanted a Messiah who was going to die on a cross. They wanted a Messiah who was going to kill all of his enemies. Jesus came to fight differently. And so he says to us, we fight differently. 
So when people, when, we're, when people do something to us, we don't retaliate. We fight to not retaliate. Sometimes we fail. But we fight differently. People slander us and we find out about it and we're hurt. And we let it go. We overlook the offense. The temptation to consider is to, is to let that person know they, that you know they said something. But you fight differently. You say, okay, all right. You think, you know what, Lord? I've sinned against you way more than that person has sinned against me, and you've forgiven me. And even though I'm hurt, even though I'm offended, I'm not going to say nothing. I'm going to overlook it. Again, that doesn't mean you have to do that in every situation. Sometimes I think it's helpful to address situations. But we fight differently to change in direction. Lastly, with conviction, it says it leads to salvation without regret. This is the end of, of, of verse 10. It leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief is evidence of eternity. It's evidence of eternity because it's godly grief. It, it cares about offending God, and it's a salvation without regret. It, it cares about salvation. Salvation and eternity are kissing cousins. They go hand in hand. You can't think salvation and not think eternity. They're person and shadow. So if it leads to salvation without regret, then godly grief is evidence of eternity. And godly grief does not regret living in light of eternity. This is huge. It doesn't regret it. I've known people that have walked away from the faith because they regret living in light of eternity. They regret giving up the pleasures of sin. They regret filling the blank. They regret what God requires of us. So they walk away from the faith. And they'll say stuff like, I never believed it anyway, or it doesn't work. Because the grief isn't godly. The sorrow isn't godly. Godly grief does not regret living in light of eternity. It understands that the salvation that I'm living for something beyond what I can physically see. There are multiple levels of faith that the Christian life requires. It's not just faith to believe in Jesus. It's also faith to believe that Jesus says who we, say, who we, say, who we are, and it's also faith that Jesus says we're going to a place that he's going to reward us. Godly grief is evidence of eternity, Godly grief does not regret living in light of eternity. And godly grief ends in eternity. In Revelation 21, second to the last chapter of the end of our Constitution, our 66 books, our Constitution. God says this in verses three and four of Revelation 21. He says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Golly, grief is from now until eternity. And then when we get there and we make it, 
don't have to happen anymore. But until then, we have to make sure that we grow in godly grief by comparing ourselves to the scriptures. And as we heard two weeks ago, Jesus is the word. So the word is Jesus. We're comparing ourselves to Jesus. And it's like, oh, okay, wow, this actually is. If my primary focus is horizontal, and it doesn't mean there won't be sorrow towards people. Don't get me wrong. We have to, there are times we got to say, would you forgive me? I was wrong. I wronged you. There was a moral, it was a moral component, moral failure on my part towards you. Whether what I said, what I did, attitudes or whatever. They're, they're, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but it has to be first and foremost, man, I failed here. Or, and I've seen this happen with many people. I've seen this happen in marriages where you just keep, you just keep thinking about your spouse has offended you and then you've offended them. And then all of a sudden, the things that are just basic, fundamental Christianity become like, I'm not doing it because we're bitter at each other. I've been there. Many people have been there. Siblings, family members. You go to family gatherings and there's just a couple family members you are not looking forward to seeing. Things that have happened, things that were said. We have to compare ourselves to Jesus, to the scriptures, so that we can be like, okay, this is against you, Lord, and this, this isn't the fruit of the spirit that I need to have. What's the action of love that is required of me right now? That's what I need to do. It doesn't matter if they treat me a certain way. That's the wrong emphasis. That's conviction. Condemnation is what we call condemnation. He says this at the end of, of, this, of this passage, at the end of verse 10. It just says, but worldly grief produces death. Real simple. It says worldly grief produces death. So this grief is in direct contrast to godly grief. Where godly grief produces salvation and eternity with God without regret, Worldly grief does the opposite. So if, if godly grief leads you to repentance and to everlasting life, then godly grief leads you to unrepentance and to hell. There's no life in worldly grief. It doesn't lead to eternal life. It's the opposite. The sorrow here. Now, this is the thing you have to understand. Sadness feels the same. Sadness feels the same for the most part. One of the ways you know if it's godly or worldly is what actions come after that. Sadness feels the same. I can listen to a song in church on a Sunday and just feel moved and tear come down my eye. And the same thing can happen to me watching a movie. I'll never forget watching Will Smith's movie where he was, uh, I forgot what it was called, where he was learning how to be in Wall Street and he was in the bathroom with his son. The pursuit of happiness. He's in the bathroom, that scene, where the guy's like, open the door, you gotta get out of here, you can't sleep here. He has no money. He doesn't have a place to sleep and his four-year-old son or whatever is just laying there asleep while he's in the bathroom 
holding the door so that the guy can't get in with a tear coming down his eye. As a dad, and I thought about, man, that broke me watching that movie. I just thought, wow, that scene. Because I'm a dad and I love my kids. I love my family. I can imagine my wife struggling because I, I'm not providing for us. I can't imagine the pain that it would cause her or my children if I cannot figure out what we're going to do, where we're going to live, how we're going to eat. And I was just thinking about that as a, as a dad. I, that scene, I watched it as a dad, and I was crying. I felt sad the same way I feel sad sometimes on Sunday hearing a certain song. Now, again, they're not the same reasons, but it's the same outward disposition. What, what, the way you know what's different is what actions come from it. Condemnation is worldly grief that produces death. It's a sorrow that does not. I would say it's a sorrow that is more focused on horizontally, not vertically. As a matter of fact, where worldly grief, where godly grief is affected because it let God down, I think worldly grief is affected because you let yourself down. Because the, the standard of, you know, you, you went against your own moral code and you feel bad about it. Maybe you stole something or you yelled at someone and you feel bad about it. Maybe you think of yourself as not that kind of person. You know, you, maybe you're affected by how they're affected by it, but it's a sorrow that doesn't necessarily lead to eternity. You know, you can feel bad about breaking your own standards. At best, it feels bad because it lets someone else down. But as we can see from the passage, feeling bad is not enough. And sometimes as believers, our sorrow is not vertical, it's horizontal. And so that grief that we feel doesn't really last. Think about it. Think about the people that you struggle with the most, whoever that is. Or the circumstance, whatever. Just think about it. What makes it difficult to fight against that? It's, it'll probably be the way that that person has treated you. I mean, think about the challenges in relationships. You know, bitterness is a simply just an, bitterness is really just an unwillingness to acknowledge one's own sinfulness. And we all can do it, or, or, or just gossip. It's just, a, it's just a willingness to talk about other people's actions and, and in effect so we can hide our own. All these things, they play out anger, fits of rage. What are you protecting? What are you afraid of? There's a lot of fear and anger. This grief produces death. So it's not that people don't feel bad. Sure they do. Godly grief can feel bad. And the worldly grief. And the reason why is because we're made in God's image. So there is a particular standard that we do have. We're made in the image of God. And because of that, we do have a degree of morality given us and a, and a conscience that we can go against that particular conscience. But it's not a grief that thinks about God's glory and that I failed in that way. It's a grief that thinks about I failed this way. And sometimes, you know how you, how you resolve that worldly grief when it's between a person? You just remove yourself from that relationship. You never even reconcile. 
You just stop talking to them. And you know what? It sounds like the smart thing, and sometimes it is, but there are times when you do that so you don't have to deal with what you have to deal with. You can just remove yourself from that relationship. Hey, this person doesn't like me and says stuff about me. Cool, I'm not talking to them anymore. Instead of being like, hey, let me find out that I did anything to offend them. Let me work through that issue. Worldly grief does not lead to Jesus. Not all sorrow is good sorrow. We have to see where does this grief lead? You see, listen to the language in the passage. It leads to, it produces. Christianity is a trajectory religion. It's heading somewhere. These actions are going somewhere. Where does it, Christianity is very much a trajectory religion. It's a trajectory faith. It leads to, it produces, there are consequences. Do not be deceived. God cannot be wrong. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the flesh, what's the trajectory? Yeah, reap destruction. Whoever sows to the spirit, what's the trajectory? Reap eternal life. Christianity is a trajectory religion. So the question that we have to ask ourselves to know what sorrow is this is what actions does this grief produce? If I'm sad about something I did, what happens after that? Because I can feel bad about hurting someone's feelings and never apologize for it. I've done that quite a few times in my life. I've done that in my marriage to my children. By God's grace, I do catch them, catch them too, though. I always tell you the worst of what I do. It's not like I just be at home all day ready to fight with my family. I actually love my wife and my children, just so you know. I have some good times with them. But I want to give you, I don't want to give you the best of me. I want you to get the worst of what happens. At least some of the worst. I won't give you all the worst, because then you'll stop coming to church. As if you don't sin. What actions does this grief produce? What are the actions? Now, what we're seeing here in the passage is a distinction between griefs, but in godly grief, we also see the makings of a plan after we fail. Now, why am I saying after? Why is this an after we fail? It doesn't have to be, but, but it, here's why it's after, because Paul, when he's writing this, Paul is describing in verse 11 what he's heard they've done after they failed. So these aren't, these aren't even though the plan that we're going to talk about in just a moment can be preemptive. It can be before we plan, right? We're going to talk about this in a minute. But, but Paul is responding to what he's writing in verse 11 is what Titus came back and told him was happening. And in this letter, he's telling them how excited he is about these things that he's seeing after they failed, after they walked away from the faith. And now they're coming back and responding with real repentance is what he's talking about. So all of this is after. It's like once they realize, wow, they've sinned, and this is important key. I don't know what they were aware of, but somehow that third letter from Paul made it clear to them that they've sinned. And this is why it's important, because it was the word of... Now, God didn't save that letter for us, but I'm still going to say it was inspired by God on some level. Even though it's not in the canon of Scripture. It didn't make, we don't know we don't have the letter. I imagine if we did, it'd probably be in the canon of Scripture. But that's not what God had. That letter was for that church. But I believe that that letter was the word of God that affected them. 
I'm sure Paul, in his correction of them, mentioned God's judgment, mentioned some things that had to do with Paul was a believer, and we know that. I don't think that Paul said, man, on this letter, I'm going to take off my believer's hat and go. No, I'm sure he was a pastor. He was a believer. So what he wrote to them was the word. They were affected by the word. This is why it's important that we have to compare ourselves to the word and not compare my actions to your actions. Because then I'll make excuses for my actions because I think my actions are always less sinful than your actions. That's just the way that happens. I have to compare it to the word. So they heard the word and they responded and so this is why I'm saying this is after the fact. After we fail, what does it look like? Let me say a couple things, and then we'll look specifically at what he lays out that I think can be the makings of a plan. Again, this was a prequel. Mike laid out very well. He prayed three times a day. Mike gave some very practical things. So what I'm asking you to do is just to put in place some things when you do those things. I think his plan is, was, was, was solid. Her many people were encouraged. I'm getting ready to step down and let Mike do all the preaching. He's holding it down right now. But the plan of godly grief, listen to what it says here in verse 11. For consider how much this diligence, consider how much diligence this very thing, listen to what he says, this grieving is God wills. So see, this godly grief is God willing it. God wants this grief. This is God wills that this grief take place. This godly grief. And you know why? One of the reasons why? Because I think it reminds us that we actually do love the Lord. Listen, when, the Lord, when Jesus said, look, the Father already knows what you need before you ask it. Our prayers are not so that God knows what we desire. Our prayers are for us to show that we actually are dependent on God. That's why I don't think our prayers, God doesn't need us to pray to be like, all right, he knows what's going on, but our prayers are a, sort of a, 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 a roadmap of our own hearts. When we hear ourselves pray, when we don't pray, all the, those things are indicators. They're markers for us to know where are we really. God doesn't need us to pray to answer our prayers. He blesses us sometimes. We ain't even ask for that. But we pray, and that helps us understand, okay, this is where I am. But this is God wills, this godly grief. It's for our benefit to show like, man, I sinned against the Lord. Remember in Luke 18, when, when it said the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee walks in, sees a tax collector on his knees, back away from there, and he walks right up to them and says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this dude. I do this, I tithe, I give a third of this, I do that, I do that. I'm not an adulterer, I don't do this, I don't hit the strip club, I don't do this. I'm not on social media all day. I don't, I don't talk like people do. As a matter of fact, I don't even care about politics. I'm none of that stuff. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not into none of that stuff. But the dude right there was like, man, Lord, I'm just aware I spend too much time watching this. I'm not giving you what you're worth. And Jesus says that person was justified. Because that grief is what God wills for us. It shows us that we're self-aware in God. What we see in verse 11, we see a few things, and then we're going to look down at what the plan is in the last few minutes. We see something about this plan that's proactive and reactive. A godly grief will have a proactive plan. It's reactive because we failed, and we're trying to go back and think about what did we do wrong, what do we have to do differently. 
and that's being proactive. The, the proactive sense is because we don't want to fail again. So it's proactive and reactive. Godly grief. It thinks about when we fail so that we can prepare ourselves to fight again. So it's proactive and reactive. Worldly grief, I think, is just reactive. Something happens and then you just feel bad about it and then eventually you just move on. Once that sadness goes away, so does the plan. <laughs> That's how it works. Once that, this, man, this is how you know. What for the, I mean, you can be sad and then once that sadness goes away, it's back in stride again. Frankie Beverly. I know some of y'all don't know about that, but you can Google it. It's proactive and reactive. This godly grief that God wills for us, it has not lost the desire to do the will of God. That's huge in this verse. It has not lost the desire. Listen, we know that we fail. But have I lost the desire to do the will of God because I failed? That is not godly grief. That's not godly grief. So if I sin against the Lord, if I fail again for the hundredth time, and my response is to withdraw from praying, reading, fellowship, and all of that, that's not godly grief. Jesus said, approach the throne of grace with confidence in Hebrews 4. Mark 15 says the curtain was torn in two so that we could have access to the Father. Our sin against, listen, we're, spoiler alert, we're all hypocrites. Every single person in the world and every believer is a hypocrite. We all do the opposite of what we say we're going to do consistently. And God, before the foundation of the world, still said they belong to me. I'm choosing them. I'm forgiving them for the hypocrisy. Let's let's just let the enemy stop trying to make us think that being a hypocrite is the worst thing ever. And I'm not talking about intentional hypocrisy. I'm talking about functional hypocrisy. Believers shouldn't try to be a hypocrite, but we're going to be hypocritical. We're going to sin in ways that we know we're not supposed to. But God was like, they belong to me anyway. He's, that's, that's the grace of God. So let's just set that aside and stop pretending like that means anything anymore. It does not. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. Let's get over that. Let's get over it. But if we lose the desire to do the will of God, then it's not godly grief. That's a strategy of the enemy to make you think, oh, man, you've you sinned against God like you need to step back. God doesn't want you to read. He's not going to hear your prayers. He doesn't believe your tears. I'm not going to, oh, I'm going to step back from the relationship from a person that I've sinned against. That's not godly grief. That's not. You look at this passage, you see verse 11. We'll cut through it in a minute. They have a desire. They haven't lost a desire to do the will of God, even though they failed significantly, that Paul had to write a letter just for their failure, have Titus deliver it, and then figure out how they doing. A whole letter was devoted to them. And they didn't lose a desire to do the will of God, so Paul is rejoicing. Yes, Titus came back. He came back. You can see this in chapter 7. I didn't want to read it, but if you read just chapter 7, beginning in like verse 2, down to our passage, you'll see a little brief snippet of what I'm talking about. Paul recognizes, yes, when Titus came back, I think that's verse 7, 
that he, he gave us this report that you were doing well. And so even though my letter grieved you, it grieved you for the right purpose. Paul was worried about the kind of grief that was going to happen. He was worried that it might lead to worldly grief, that people get offended and then walk away. He said, no, it produced godly grief because you haven't lost the desire to do the will of God. Brothers and sisters, the enemy will trick us into thinking that when we fail, that the godly thing to do is distance ourselves from God. That we don't read, we don't pray, we just kind of, and then we find other things to replace that. And then it becomes harder and harder. Next thing you know, a week goes by, we haven't really prayed. Next thing you know, we're just, it, it just piles up and then condemnation just piles up and piles up. No. God knows you're going to fail. And he says, I, you still belong to me. I still chose you. Keep going. Keep fighting. But fight differently. Don't fight by removing yourself from the presence of God. Don't, don't take that verse, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, as if when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you got to get out of here. That's not what it means. Hebrews 4, read that. But approach the throne of grace with confidence. So you may find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Godly grief has confidence that it's still a child of God. And that's why it does what it does. Listen, one of the things I love about being a dad is that when my kids, I'll have to correct them, and they feel it. You can see it. See it in their face and body language. They come and ask for forgiveness. And all. But they never think he's not my dad anymore. They never think like, I mean, sometimes the sorrow was a little too quick. It might be something they did. I'm like, son, I was okay. And so probably please forgive me. Like, I forgive you, son. Can I get some V-Bucks and run? Let me show you this thing in Fortnite. It's like, hold on, son. Let that grief sit for a couple more minutes, man. That grief went away real quick. My kids don't question. Even if me and my wife get in an argument, I've said some very cruel things to my wife. I've said very cruel things to her, which she's never once said, are you my husband still? She doesn't ask that question. She may question what kind of husband I am, but she doesn't ask, am I still her husband? Godly grief doesn't, is confident that we're a child of God still. Godly grief has confidence in the grace of God. That's why we go after things. Godly grief doesn't assume things will change by chance. I'm going to prove that in a second. And godly grief has no shame in making a plan, even writing it down. There's no shame in that. Let me prove this to you, what I just said. Let me prove this. What does a plan look like? Let's look at verse 11 closely. Let's zoom in. For I consider how much diligence. Starts off with just diligence. The first characteristic of a plan that's rooted in godly grief is diligence. This person is eager. So they were eager. They're aware of what they did wrong and there's diligence. I'm going after this. The word that they heard from Paul didn't make them think they were less believers. 
It made them think we need to start acting like believers. There was a confidence in the grace of God, a confidence in being a child of God. There was no loss of a desire to do the will of God. They were like, we need to be diligent in this. We need to be diligent. This is like being preemptive. When you're diligent, man, you do stuff before it happens. You do stuff before, you're like, hey, listen. Okay, so maybe there's a person or people in your life that's a challenge to be around, and you're going to be around them. What do you do with that? What does diligence look like? So as Mike said, you pray three times a day. The first time you pray that day in the morning, you say, Lord, I, I remind yourself. Let me, let me, let me, I'm going to say something that may sound controversial, but I'm going to say this anyway. You guys can take me to task in the Q&A, and I think I can prove it biblically, but don't pray that God give you or help you to stop being something. God says you already have it. Put on. Put it on. And the reason why I'm saying it is because some of us think we don't have it and we're waiting for God to give it. And then when it doesn't happen, we think, okay, we can't obey until we feel it. You know how many people I've talked to, but this usually happen with mostly single girls. They'll be in a relationship they shouldn't be in, and they'll pray, God, if it's not your will, take the feelings away. But all you do is spend time with the dude, think about the dude, all that stuff. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. God says obey and the feelings will go away. Remove yourself from that relationship. So understand what I'm saying. Don't pray, God, give me this. Okay, pray, give me the strength. Okay, cool. But don't think for a moment that you don't already have within you. That's, that's all. I'm not gonna put, we, can, we can hit a bunch of passages to prove that point. You already have it. Remember 2 Peter 1 he says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, brotherly affection, brotherly affection, love, love, godliness. He says, whoever is not growing in these qualities is so nearsighted that he forgot that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Sometimes we're asking God to give us something that he's already given us. And when we don't feel differently, we think we got to wait till we feel differently. And God's like, you already have it. You got to put it on. Paul says, put to death, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. So you wake up in the morning, there's a person or maybe there's a place that you know that your job or something like, man, it's going to be a struggle. Man, I can't. So what do you do that prayer time in the morning, whether it's on your commute or maybe it's in the bed, you just pray, Lord, Lord, you, you've given me what I need. Lord, help me to obey you. Remind, bring, this, bring this to memory, please. Remind me and think about, think about the scriptures. Don't think in sort of osmosis. Think like, okay, what, 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 what fruit of the spirit do I need to really act in today? And it's not, and even if you don't feel it, we still do it. Listen, if we only obey God when we feel like it, then good luck. Because the only times we really feel like obeying God is when we get something nice. Hey, that stimulus check came in. God is good. Shoot, I'm getting ready to go. Y'all trying to have a prayer service tonight? She ready to go. May call Tim. Hey, Tim, see if Bethel lets you lead worship. We just trying to have a spontaneous prayer service. Why? I just feel like I want to honor the Lord because you got something nice from him. We don't do that when we don't feel well. That's what we need to prayer service. When I'm struggling, I just lost a job. We just lost a child. I just lost a relationship. I just lost an opportunity. We won't be like, hey, I can't run in when they said unto me. 
We don't do that then because we often measure it by what things that God does for us. So we can't measure our obedience by when we feel like it. We measure our obedience by believing in faith that God has already given me what I need to do. I'm praying to him to remind me of that responsibility. And so part of my plan is, if it's a person, I'm going to think, okay, what did the action of love required for this person? If it's a place I got to go to that I'm going to struggle with my job and stuff, okay, let me, let me refresh myself on the word, on Jesus, the fruits of the spirit that he wants me to act in. And I'm going to remind myself that throughout the day. Listen, a plan is not something that you don't go back to. Sometimes you got to remember that plan. You might write it down. It might be a verse and you remind yourself because, you know, we get caught up. There's so many things going on. And all of a sudden you forget the very the very verses you were paying for that you were, you were saying, Lord, let me be pay. I want to be patient. I want to honor you today. And you forget about it until the day's over. And you spent the whole day being impatient. Guilty as charged. Right. Diligence says, you know what? I know that this person is going to buy. I know that I have an issue with this person. I know that this place, I know this particular time of day is a temptation for me. Or I know if I go to this event, it's going to be a temptation for me. So diligence says, what do I, what's the fruit of the spirit required in this moment that I need to do? It's that, so ask God to remind you, but God's given it to you. So don't, 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 please don't take this apart. Like, yeah, but don't ask God to fill you with this, all of that stuff. I'm just saying, don't pray God, please give me this as if you don't have it and you're waiting to do it until you feel like you have it. Because it just doesn't work like that. And a lot of us live like that. The next thing he says this, he says, it, it, it says this, what a desire. So it says, for consider the diligence, this very thing, this godly, this grieving that God wills has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourself. This is huge. This is my motive. I want to honor the Lord. So my plan is going to honor the Lord. So when I pray, I'm going to pray that I honor the Lord. So if it's the first time, I'm, so each time I'm praying throughout the day, I'm reminding myself. I want, to, I, want to, I want to clear myself of giving in to this particular sin or these struggles. I want to clear myself. This is about your identity. This is what the, this, these people wanted to show who they were. When it says you want to clear yourself, that's about your identity. I want to make sure that I'm not known for this. I don't want to be known for this. So I'm going to be diligent to not be known for this. This is where godly grief is necessary because it's the motive. I want to honor the Lord. If that motive isn't there, then it's just not going to happen. It won't sustain you. If you're trying to do it to to please someone else, it won't sustain you. Because as soon as that person doesn't recognize it, it's a wrap. That's it. He keeps going. He says, what indignation. This is like an anger at yourself. This is a sense of, nah, man, this is like, this is like when you have, this is about the, the level of commitment to the plan. It's like, I'm not, I refuse to allow this to be the determining role or personality or whatever it is. I refuse to let this have mastery over me, dominion over me, as Romans 6 talks about. It's a refusal of that. There's an indignation. It's basically saying, I don't want to act this way. I don't want to be this way. It's not saying, but I'm waiting until God takes it away. It doesn't, it doesn't do that. God already says, all right, he took it away. Romans 6 tells us that the spirit, with the, with the, the, the spirit, we don't, the spirit doesn't have, the spirit blocks the authority of sin that was in our lives at one point. There's a whole point of Romans 6. It's like, man, what you, don't let sin reign over you. Like you somebody different now. But a lot of us think like, man, because we're so, and again, it's the culture we live in, right? We're feelings oriented. So I got to feel differently. Listen, your feelings 
aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily true. I can still be offended at someone, but act in the fruit of the spirit. It doesn't mean because I'm offended, I can't do anything until I'm not feeling this way. There are times, listen, sometimes we're depressed. You go through depression. Depre- you, the, the goal isn't like, how do I stop being depressed? It's how do I go glorify God as a depressed person? Sometimes anxiety is not going nowhere. So it's not like, okay, because I feel anxious, I have a right. No, it's what do, how do I honor the Lord while I'm feeling anxious right now? What does that look like? What truth do I need right now? How do I act? Sometimes you just have to take a couple deep breaths. You might need a few minutes. Let me step away for a minute. And just, at my house, we used to do this thing. We don't do it as much anymore because our kids got hip. But like when we were tempted, like if it was just a lot going on, we would take a deep breath sometimes just to kind of remind ourselves, do not give in. So it'd be like, you know, my kids, Poppy, can I have this? Poppy, like me and Betsy would be trying to talk or something. And my kids, they just would wonderfully walk up and want to show me something or, or whatever, just interrupt. And I would, she'd look at me, she'd be, we'd, be, we'd be tempted, and I'd just be like this. Son, what is it, son? Me and mommy are talking right now. That little breath. But then eventually they knew that that deep breath meant like when they, I'm tempted. So they, they, to the point where one time I took a deep breath and I wasn't even thinking about this. But my son was like, Poppy, are you upset at us? I said, nah, son, I'm not, I'm not upset when I take a deep breath. It's to remind me not to be upset. So now we don't do the deep breath as much as we used to. But there was this sense of, look, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to act this way. But you have to, in faith, believe that even if you feel this way, you still can act differently than how you feel. That feeling is to consider, give in to this emotion. Let anxiety overrule you. Let bitterness overrule you. Let anger overrule you. That's still to consider. That feeling is to consider. It's strong. And sometimes it seems like it's stronger than our desire to resist it. And sometimes we don't. We fail. And there's forgiveness for that. But this anger, this is like, I don't want to act this way. So whatever person or place or time or event, those are usually the four categories that kind of take up our lives. Persons, people, places, times, and moments are usually the four big sort of parameters of our lives. We can place everything in these four and say, okay, I need to think about when I'm with this person, this is what I'm tempted to, here's how I need to pray. What fruit of the Spirit do I need in this moment? And listen, let me tell you something. The way it works, as you all know this, you guys are mature than me. The way this works is God doesn't compartmentalize it. It's not like you're focusing on fear of man or anxiety, and so you're giving in to lying, stealing, and all. That doesn't work like that. (laughs) This is not how it works. It's not like God's like, hey, man, you focus on anger, but go ahead and steal stuff. No, that's not how it works. You're always working on everything because the Spirit's always working in us in every way. But there are times where we're focusing on something. Don't let that focus, that focus is intentional from the Lord. That's the season you're in. That's the season you're in. For some people, it may be anger. For some people, it may be discouragement. For some, it may be anxiety. For some, it may be complaining. For some, you know, whatever it is. But you're always working on everything, even if we fail at some of these things. That indignation is no joke. And then it talks about, then it talks about this, what fear, what deep longing, and what zeal. These are all what we're striving for. These are the things that we want to have, a fear of reverence for God, a deep longing and a desire to be with God and with God's people, a zeal, a jealous for God's glory, 
These are all what the plan is leading us to, to have these attributes. This is why we make a plan. This is why when you, when, you, when you imitate Mike and you pray three times a day, you're praying to get to this point because you want to have a deeper reverence for God, a deeper desire to be with God, a, a, a zeal, a jealousy for God. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's just what we do. I'm, it sounds like a lot because I'm spelling it all out, but it's just it's what we do in the moment's, in the moment's notice. We train ourselves to think about these things. And then there's justice. He says this, and what, what justice in every way you've showed yourself to be pure in this matter. Justice is a, ready, a readiness to punish wrongdoing. So in your plan, what are the consequences for you for not sticking to that plan? What will you do when you fail? So sometimes, it's, hey, listen, I need to confess it to the Lord. I may need to let a trusted person know. These are just consequences that help you. This is part of your plan. This is the justice of your plan. I want to try to see where I went wrong. Where did I mess up? How did I go from consider to act? What did I do? What was it? What was the justification? That's always for me. This is for the, when I'm thinking about when I fail, it's always for me. How did I justify this? What did I do? That's where I know that's where it is for me. It's always how did I justify this? What, what happened? And it might be, well, I just was a hurt because they said this and I felt like I'm tired of filling the blank. I'm tired of hearing this or this or that. I'm tired of, or I didn't want to be interrupted right now. It could be something petty, but there was, how did I justify this? That's where I go all the time. And I usually find my answer right there. How did you justify being harsh, irritable? And it's usually because I'm focusing horizontal because somebody's done something to me. That's usually when I'm, when we fail, it's usually because my emphasis is horizontal and my comparison is horizontal. My comparison has to be vertical. It has to be the scriptures. Because then I always have room to grow. But if I compare myself to you, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm, I'm doing all right. And that's just not true. So you confess it to the Lord, confess it to a trusted person you know, try to figure out where did you mess up. It's going to be at justify. How did you justify it? And then you make adjustments. And then you fight again. Fight again. Christian life. And if we fail, when we fail, if and when, we remember stuff like 1 John 2.1. It says, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You remember 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. But don't let that excuse us from cultivating a godly sorrow. A conviction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the reality of your word and, and being able to delve deeper into what is required. I know that it sounds like a lot because I laid it out over the course of an hour in a sermon, but in reality, I'm just, I'm just pulling out the details of what pretty much a lot of us just do in a, in a couple moments. I just spread it out in a sermon, but a lot of it is what just happens in our lives moment to moment. Father, I pray that we would not fall victim, that we would not let 
Failing to plan and be a hindrance to love, loving one another. Help us to see what godly grief looks like, what conviction looks like. Help us to, to, like David, recognize that our sin is first vertical before it's horizontal. Help us to not have worldly sorrow that feels bad but then moves on and doesn't do anything because it doesn't compare itself to God. It doesn't, doesn't compare itself to you, Jesus. Worldly sorrow compares itself to itself or to others and then it moves on when that sorrow is gone. It lets bygones be bygones. But godly sorrow says, no, we want to honor you. We want to be diligent. We want to have a certain level of indignation, almost anger towards ourselves. We want there to be some justice if we mess this up. We want to go. We want to do this. We, we're confident in our relationship with you. Not, we, don't, we don't let our sin lead us to withdraw from you as if somehow that's what pleases you, that we distance ourselves from. That's only worse for us. So I know I failed in this in many ways, Lord, both in this church, before this church, in my home. But by your grace, Lord, this isn't all that I am. This isn't all that we are. You've given us a measure of hope. You've given us uh, your word. You've given us relationship. We have your spirit. And all these things, they help us come to the godly conclusions that we have. So even when we're aware of our worst, your word tells us that even when our hearts condemn us, for you are greater than our hearts. You're greater than the world. As we, as we spend, as we get to the tail end of our series on love, may these hindrances, failing to plan, not hinder us. Help us to remember and to think what action, not what feeling, but what action of love is required when I'm with certain people, when I'm in certain places, when there are certain times, certain events. What fruit of the Spirit is required of me? And help us to not ask you for these things, waiting to feel these things, but help us to ask you only to be reminded that you've given us your grace to have them and that we act in, in those. We act in faith. Obedience is about faith. If we're waiting to feel a certain way, then that's sight. Help us to act in faith. Like we have faith that when we die, we're going to go to heaven, even though we know we sin willfully. We have to have faith that we can obey you, even though we don't feel like it. When we don't feel like it, at least. Thank you for your grace, Lord. All this is for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kurt. Um, thank you. Um, we have a couple of questions. Um, <clears throat> the first one I'd like to ask is, um, you mentioned uh, living for eternity. Uh-huh. In light of uh, eternity, yeah. In light of, you're living in light of eternity. Um, how... Can a person recognize that they aren't living in light of eternity, even though they like they're on a trajectory? You mentioned trajectory as mm -hmm. well, a trajectory that that um, may not be sinful, but maybe foolish, uh, maybe um, you know what Paul says that all things are lawful, but not everything is expedient. Mm -hmm. um, how might one recognize that they're not living in light of eternity in that realm where it's not, thou shall not. Well, I think 
God is all, I mean, the, you know, the thing that we can often forget about the Christian life and obedience in and of itself is not just the action, but the motive, right? So when Jesus says stuff like, I always do what pleases the Father, like he wasn't just talking about his actions, he was talking about his motives. So when we don't have the motive to honor the Lord, when we're doing things because we want recognition or we want something else, then that's not living in light of eternity. Like eternity is about being with Jesus mm-hmm. and honoring the Lord. And so we do things to live in light of eternity is essentially I'm obeying God because I know I'm headed to eternity. So it's that motivation. It's, that, it's, it's the reason why when no one's watching, you don't give in to particular sins, mm-hmm. not because someone would see you and catch you, mm-hmm. but because you're just living in light of eternity. Like I'm I'm aware that God is watching. He's sovereign, and I want to honor him because I plan on spending eternity with him. It's, just, it's a mindset that I think, and, I, and the reason why it's challenging to do it, because a lot of us think of eternity as no more sin and temptation. Many people don't think of eternity as we're going to be with Jesus. We think of eternity as we're going to not struggle with sin and have a glorified body and and maybe see some loved ones. We don't think that we're going to, when we see him, we will be like him for whatever. And partly it's because we just live in a country of such prosperity that we don't really have a need. When I was in India, though, man, they just couldn't wait to see the Lord. And their passion to see the Lord was, was palpable mm-hmm. because they didn't have the kind of conditions that we have. They didn't have, they were persecuted. They didn't have the freedoms that we have, the religious freedoms we have. And so they didn't, they, to them, God was everything. To us, God is one of many things. So I think to have that, we have to train ourselves to remember, like, read Hebrews 11. And when it talks about these people, they were this, they were that. They, were, they left this land and they left that. Like, these people understood that this was not their home, that they were aliens, sojourners. Mm-hmm. We don't think like that. We kind of act like our country's the promised land. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, you know. This is the land of exile. And compare, it may be the promised land in the rest of the country, the world, right, right. but it's not the promised land in terms of the Bible and scripture. Right. So I think we have to think like that. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, in your plan uh, consequences. Um, when is it, what, what's an appropriate, when is it appropriate as a consequence to involve uh, your D group leader or your pastor? When is it appropriate? Mm-hmm. One, so I think that that's, there's not a, that's not a, 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 a cookie-cutter question. I mean, some of it depends on relationship. Like, there are people that I have relationship with that might bring me in this stuff that's not like, you got to tell your pastor this. Mm-hmm. It's just you just have relationship. So relationship kind of opens the door for that. But when you're trying to evaluate when I think I need, is when I need help. Like, I'm not really making progress in this area. Right. I, need, I, need, I need my... Listen, some, let me just say this real quick. There are people who think, like, man, I didn't want to bother you because you're too busy. Like, this, Mike and I are wonderfully have a salary because of your generous giving to meet with you all and do stuff. Sure, we have moments where we can't meet this moment, do that, but we're not here for that. And I appreciate people like, well, we don't want to give everything to you guys, but there are some things that we can just help with because there's, we do this for and have done this for a while, and there's a skill involved in it. Sure, I got a biblical counseling team that is almost done with their training and then we'll, you know, but, but even with them, they're not going to, there's going to be time and, and, and stuff like that. Like 
you can talk to your pastors. We're not going to judge you or that we're here to help. And, and so your D group leaders in that. But even all the D group leaders, not everyone, you know, it's a skill to walk people through challenging things. But I think when you feel like I'm not making progress or I'm really struggling, this is like the temptation is like just, you know, to do this is hard or whatever. Then I think, hey, let me get let me get some of the wisdom. Let me humble myself and just talk to my pastors or let me get one of my D group leaders, you know, someone that I trust is mature than me or at least as mature because because they say misery loves company. But so does you know, so does same sin issues. Mm. So you don't mm. want to just talk to somebody. This is just going to be like, man, hey. Let's just pray together. Like we need, you need to find out what's happening here. Like how, why, like again, why, how am I justifying? Like why am I justifying this consistently? Mm. Like what is it about this issue that I am allowing myself to do this? Because remember, it's a choice, right? You have to remember, no one is like, mm. you know, there's no the devil doesn't have a, a spiritual gun in your head saying do it or else. Like right. we make choices to give in. So it's like, why am I justifying this, this area? Let's let me ask some questions about. What do I think in the moments when I'm when I'm struggling and I give in? What is the what's the what's the lie that I believe in? What, what do I what do I give into? So for Eve, it was like, oh, it's it's you know it's it, it does look good to eat. It does make one wise, and then she buy. What is it? What's the temptation? What's the lie? What's the what is it that allows me to give in? It's that type of work that you'll need to to do, and your pastors can do that, and your D group leaders can can help in that too. Thank you. Um, Excuse me. And um, how would you advise cultivating godly sorrow for the world, our nation, and our culture? And there's, there's a second follow-up question. Um, could you give examples of practical actions of repentance one could take on behalf of systems and constructs that Christians are subjected to but aren't submitted to God in? Uh, are the first the first one? Um, that one, you know. Again, so this is the horizontal versus vertical sort of thing. This, I'm going to stay with that framework because that's what I was working with in this message. You know, we don't look at people and think about eternity. We look at people mm. and think about. What's, who they voted for, or mm. what, how, or what, that, what ethnicity they are? Are they? What's their season of life? Are they? If they're immigrant, are they legal? Are they illegal? We we look at people in very non-biblical ways, and so mm. to cultivate a godly grief for our nation, we have to think about the people in the nation that don't love the Lord, that don't are not believers, are not going to make it beyond this nation. And it's just in, in the American, in the Western church, I just think it's easy to not take that seriously. Mm. So, you know, we'll actually be more harsh and judgmental towards other believers than we will non-believers, some of us. Mm. So I think to cultivate a godly sorrow for the world and the nation, I think first we have to pray for it. Mm. Like you just, when Jesus said, you know, pray for your enemies, he didn't say that to make fun of uh, so the forces. Of the, he said that because when you pray for a person, you will grow an affection towards that person. Mm -hmm. If you're praying that God would have mercy on them, you're going to eventually treat them differently. Mm -hmm. And so when you pray for your nation, like as much as people hate Donald Trump or hate Joe Biden, like we need to pray for our nation and not just because we're afraid of what laws they're passed, afraid of what they'll tweet, but like 
These people are not going to make it if they don't trust the Lord. They're not going to make it. So I think first I would start, I, I, I try to think about that. Like when, I, like when we go to like, you know, football games or something, the Skins game or something, and we'll sit there. At some point, we'll just, one of us, usually me and Warren go to these games, and sometimes Mike will go with me. Or what, we'll, just, and we'll just be like, man, I wonder how many of these people are saved. We'll be in a stadium of 100,000 people, and we'll just wonder, like, man, this whole stadium, like, just collapsed. I wonder how many of these people would be saved. Like, we'll think like that because it's just like, wow. Even when I watch a movie, I'll watch someone get killed in a movie and be like, dag, if that was real life, they stood before the Lord in that moment. Like, I'll just think, because I'm training myself to think about the world in that way. It's not always easy. Doesn't mean, like, you're going to all of a sudden run and be like, please, you got to believe. You know, doesn't mean you're going to scramble and run for the Lord, but there is a sense where I need to cultivate that and think that way and start there. I think, I think sometimes we're looking for something different than what the Lord's provided. Like, start there. Start with praying for the nation and growing in a heart for the lost in the nation. The second question, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge with answering that question is there are plenty of structures that believers are caught up in. So I'm not quite sure what, because there would be a different answer depending on the structure that you're talking about that Christians are a part of. So, I, you know, I'd have to, it'd be better if I knew sort of what you're talking about. But in general, I, I, I think we, it's like, what are the things that God cares about, right? Mercy, justice, righteousness. Like, these are all things that God cares about. I want to I wanna align myself as best as I can with those things. I want to align myself with that. And I want to do it in a way that I think is, consistent with who I am and what I think God has required of me. Like, I don't personally feel like I need to go march and say stuff. And say, That's not my, what I do. But I have, a, I have a podcast. I do. I still put out music. I get asked to speak in certain situations. I say a lot of stuff that I never say in the pulpit here when I go somewhere else. I say a lot of stuff because that, that's another platform that God has given me and I speak to those things. And that's what they need. Our church isn't always asking for that. I deal with things that I think will affect our church, even if people don't want to hear them. I just got to take it to the chin, and that's it. So but we deal with things that we think are happening in our church. But you got to find out what, what's the platform. What do you, what do you and, and for some of you, it may be go march and do that. But you just got to use wisdom when you do that and make sure that the cause that you're doing it for is one that glorifies God. It can't just be you individually because you could find yourself in a situation that you didn't mean to find yourself in. So again, again, that question is, there's so many different structures that we're involved in. I mean, you're talking about politics, you're talking about race, you're talking about you know, finances, economy. Are you, there's so many different ways to really answer that question. But you can, whoever you are, if you're a member of the church, you can get to me and we can talk in more specifics and I can probably speak to that or, or find someone else who might be better at answering that one. Uh, thank you. Um, another question is um, from uh, a high schooler who... Um, says that they, you know, they can use uh, others as an excuse not to pray and drown themselves in the things of the world. Um, so they're looking for some advice on how they can uh, find motivation to read the Bible and to pray to build their relationship up with the Lord. It's a good question. I mean, you're not asking just for high school. I think a lot of people need this answer. Um, I know I, I need this answer at times in my life. I, I, you know, 
again, we're going to say with the vertical horizontal, right? So the, well, first of all, let me say this. There's no, there's no switch. So let me just say that. There's no, and I'm not saying that you're saying this by asking this question, but often we're thinking of a switch. Like what, how do I just turn it on? You can't, it doesn't do that. Right? You look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. You, you sow, which means you create habits. You sow to the flesh or you sow to the spirit. Like this is about creating habits. So there's no switch that you can just turn on but you have to, if you're a believer and you're thinking about these things, again, and this is where it's hard for us because we don't really think vertically as much. We think vertically in more of a, we know God exists, we know he's sovereign, sort of these kind of grandiose, really big picture God, but we don't think specifically sometimes like God is watching what I'm doing. He cares about me. I'm going to stand before God and give an account for what I did. I'm you know, we don't think like, man, if I don't sow to the spirit, then there's no neutrality here, right? Like if you're not sowing to the spirit, you're to some degree sowing to the flesh. So if you're not reading and praying and stuff like that, then you're moving away from the Lord. So there's no switch, but a lot of it is just like, okay, how do I get good at anything I practice? Like if you play an instrument or if you play a sport, it wasn't like you just got up and one day was like, oh my gosh, I got a killer crossover. It was like, man, you went outside and you practiced, you know? You didn't just get up one day and just go dunk it and through the leg. It was like, now nah, you practice that joint. You probably hit that rim and got hung a couple times, right? Anything you're good at, you practice. And, and, it's, and, and within the Christian life, it's almost like we shouldn't have to practice to be good at it. Like somehow we should just be like, bam, and we just get it. And that's just not how it works. Anything that, anything that we're good at, we have to practice. And so there's no, there's no difference here. You have to practice. What I would do is say, let me find out what's something I'm interested in in the Bible. Like right now, for me personally, I am slowly going through the Gospel of John just in my own devotional time. I just want to read John, and I'm just, I'm just blown away by stuff that Jesus says and does. I see parallels to things of today, and I just, I'm just like, wow, he just does crazy stuff in this book. And I'm going through it slow. Like, I'm not going through, like, reading three chapters. I read a portion. I think about what he, what, what's happening. I look at certain verses and think, what does that mean and how does that play out in the narrative? And so I think you have to find something you're interested in. If you're struggling to read the Bible, stay away from, like, this is just my perspective. Go to narratives. Go to stories. Read the book of Acts and just see how the church. Don't go to, like, don't go to minor prophets. I'm not saying you should, but if you're struggling to read the minor prophets or the prophets, Isaiah is going to be a tough read, bro, if you're struggling to read the Bible. So I ain't saying you should. I'm just saying somebody might be like, well, I do it all the time. That works for you. I don't think it. I think go to narratives. Go to read Genesis and see how God worked. Read, read, read one of the Gospels and just say, okay, yeah, I know these stories, but let me slowly go through. If you want the action gospel is Mark. Mark is the action Matthew's the, 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 uh, the documentary, John is the drama, and Luke is kind of like the sci-fi joint. So, like, just go through and just kind of read and just, but I would do something like that and just try to grow in an appetite for it because otherwise you're just not, you're, you're not going to get motivated unless you practice. 
And once you realize, okay, so just do this. Say, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to commit to reading five times this week, even if it's just 10 minutes a day. I'm going to set a goal and keep it no matter what. Set a goal and keep it. If I'm only going to read 10 minutes, I'm going to read 10 minutes, five times, and then just each, and then just grow in that goal a little bit more. And maybe next week, it's okay. I'm going to read all, every day for 10 minutes. Then the following week, I'm going to read every day for 11 minutes. And then 12, just set a goal and just stick to it. You will be surprised. You will be really surprised. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> the next question, the person asks, um, what is a loving way to treat someone who claims to be a believer, but um, it's apparent from their lifestyle that they don't have a conviction to honor the Lord, and they really don't want um, want you to be involved in their lives, <laughs> in their life, excuse me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at your question. Right. I'm laughing at the scenario. Right, right, right. Because I know it well. <laughs> um, right. I've talked to people over the years and just seen this play out a lot. So here's the, there's good news and bad news. So what do you want first? Since you can't answer, I'm going to answer for you. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is, what can you do? Absolutely nothing. You can't do anything. Listen, uh, you've heard me say this over the years if you've been around for a while. A whisper is too loud if someone doesn't want to hear what you have to say. So if a person is saying, they say they're a Christian, but there's no conviction and they don't want to be told, then, the, then, then what you can do for them is pray. And again, it's, one of those, it's a vertical thing, right? But it's one of those things that we think we don't realize that's a weapon. That's a weapon that's not of this world. You pray. And what I mean, and what I mean by pray, I don't mean pray and see if God answers it by tomorrow. That's just how we pray, right? We pray for a few weeks and think, man, the Lord isn't tripping. And it's like, man, he already answered the prayer, but you ain't going to see it for four years. <laughs> Like, we, you know what I'm saying? Like, when we pray, like, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not just his will, it's his way. Mm -hmm. So, like, we, I think when I say pray, it's not like, all right, let me, you know, let me check. Man, they still doing it. My prayer isn't working. That's just not how it works. So, I think if you can't talk to a person, then talk to God about that person mm -hmm. and pray. That's how I think. If I can't talk to him, I'm going to talk to God about him. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm going to go vertical first. But then if you do have some kind of relationship with them, I'll do stuff like this. Like I have people who would say stuff like that. Like I, I even have, I have some friends that I'm around occasionally that talk like they believe in God and they spiritual. And I know that that's not legitimate. I know it's legitimate to them based on how they process it. So I might do something like this. Hey, so, so where do you feel like, where do you feel like you believe in God? Like where do you see that at in your life? And they'll just be like, yeah, man, I'll do this and do that and do that. And I'll say, so what, is, what do you feel like that, that accomplishes by you doing, not doing those things? You know, I want to know what they think about themselves. I want to know that. And I'll just be like, well, a lot of people, then a lot of people believe in God that are based on like what you're saying right there because a lot of people think like that. Like what makes what you do like God acceptable? Like I'm just curious to know. I'll just ask questions. And I'm not trying, I'm not even, and this is the thing. Learn how to ask questions to get information not to ask questions to manipulate them to get to what you're really trying to say because people will pick up on that quick. Learn how to ask questions to just get general, general information, genuine information. I just want to hear your, your thoughts. I'm not, I might not even share the gospel if I feel like, 
I mean, just learn how to add. Listen, I don't think the Lord is like, you got to share the gospel every minute or else. It's like, nah, sometimes it's like, man, I'm not going to say that yet. I want to just, I want to build. Because if someone doesn't want to hear it, you know, it's going to be hard. That's a wall. Mm-hmm. That's like one of them, it would be like me trying to climb the army wall with the rope. It's going to take me a couple of months to get up that joint. They're going to have the old squad like, come on, man, you can do it. I'm going to be mad at everybody yelling because my arms are tired. It's a wall that's going to be hard to climb. So you, just, so you just have to, instead of trying to climb it, just start taking bricks from the bottom of it, mm-hmm. little by little. Just ask questions. Get information. Get in general information. That's usually how you have to work with people who just ain't trying here. All right. And this is um, the last question that I see. Um, so um, the person asks, um, in our plans to address sin, when we fail, how should we discern the level of attention we put to this? They're concerned that um, uh, sometimes uh, believers feel like they should go back and correct the wrong they've done. And I think what they mean by that is that like, um, maybe if the genesis of the situation was like years ago and they might feel like they need to correct whatever the genesis was and it, but that's not, but it's progressed, right. um, you know, to a current day action. So what was the, the beginning part of it? The beginning part was in their, um, in their plans to address sin, um, how should they discern the level of attention to, to give to addressing that sin? Uh, I mean, sometimes it's intensity. So sometimes it's frequency and intensity. So, like, like, so let's just say what, what, what Mike was saying is legitimate, and that there's an origin there that's built on from that. You might need to go back and talk to that. I imagine that there's a person involved in that, and, the, and the, usually that's involved with a person. There's some kind of relational strain that has longevity. You know, maybe you have to go to that person and just humble yourself. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's just good to go to people and ask for forgiveness of ways that we've just not react, honored the Lord towards them, whether they believe it or not. Sometimes you just got to you got to you got to you got to do that. But again, I think the level of attention to me is usually frequency and intensity. Like if this is just I'm just if it's if it's the type of thing where I'm just like bitter and this thing is just not going nowhere. That's frequent to me. Like I need to I need to give this serious attention. I need to sit down and figure out. And then if I feel like I'm not getting it, I might talk to Mike and be like, man, listen, bro. And I'll give him the situation and I'll tell him stuff and let him ask me. And I got a couple other friends other pastor friends of mine, other, but I'll just ask them, like, you know, what do you think about this? You know, so it just depends on, but I think frequency and intensity. If it's happening a lot or if it's, like, really strong, I need to pay attention to this because this is more than just, you know, this ain't just no typical thing. Like, this is, this, is, this, is, this is having a moment in my life right now. And if it's, you know, so that, that's what I tend to think about it, so. But listen, if you're a member of the church, I'm here, you know me, feet, if you, if you, Need something else or something specific? Please email or text me if you have I me. Mean, I mean, you can. All our numbers are in the thing. You can text me if you're a member. I have no problem with it. If you're not a member, uh, thanks for watching today, and, and you can become a member, and then you can text us and call call too. If you're not a member, you can send an email, and then and then I'll, and then Jasmine will will, will will let us know if it's something we should respond to. Jasmine is my email blocker. If you send something crazy. She's letting that thing go to the, to the atmosphere, to the internet. So that thing ain't going that way. But 
All right. Thanks so much for for doing it. Uh, don't forget, you got. I think it's this is the last chapter, right? This is chapter eight this week, right? This chapter eight. So you'll get some questions and stuff from me, D group leaders. And uh, this is this is the end of this book. Thank you for trudging along the way. And next week will be the last sermon on the series of love. And then we're going to move on from there. So glad to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Been praying for you all. And let's. Let's, 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 let's stay vertical and then horizontal for God's glory and for our good. All right? Love you guys, and we'll see you briefly Wednesday night, if not before. All right? See you.